0: This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is August 11th, 2022. While there was no three-day weekend, no patio furniture sales, and Hallmark did not produce a special line of cards, this past Monday, August 8th, was no ordinary Monday. For NASDAQ-listed firms, it marked the first deadline for annual disclosure about their board's gender, racial and ethnic, and sexual orientation diversity numbers. While seemingly a narrow corporate governance issue that comes from one exchange in one country, the implications for companies and investors are quite notable. More data, more standardized data means more informed comparisons as investors evaluate the companies that make up their portfolios. And as we'll hear from our guests today, shareholders around the world are looking for this data, not only for board diversity, but for diversity at all levels of a firm.
1: If investors are going to make knowledgeable voting and investment decisions, they need to be informed. And the way they get their information primarily is through public disclosure.
0: That's today's first guest.
1: My name is Catherine McCall. I am the executive director of the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance, which is an organization representing institutional shareholders that manage approximately uh, $6 in assets. There is a risk involved in investing, but you minimize that risk by having enough uh, information about what's relevant and can impact the investment. And so essentially it gives them the tools. If they have this disclosure, it gives them the tools to engage with issuers and boards and to have a meaningful assessment and make decisions meaningfully in their voting and investment decisions.
0: Our second guest today could not agree more.
2: My name is uh, Harlan Tufford. I'm in MSCS Toronto office, and I work on the uh, the ESG research team, focusing on corporate governance uh, practices in the Americas. If you want to compare the financial performance of two companies, that's easy to do because you have consistent disclosure about financial performance. You can look at the revenue figures of Company A and Company B and understand uh, the the assumptions and the, the how that number was determined. But if you want to look at performance on diversity today, you don't have that same apples to apples consistent disclosure. And, and what the NASDAQ diversity disclosure rule gives investors is that kind of consistent uh, comparable disclosure. And it's going to allow investors... To look at two Nasdaq-listed companies and and understand you know in a consistent apples to apples way you know which one might be a leader and which one might be a laggard in terms of building a, a diverse board across a number of vectors, and this is this is data that right now investors can't really uh, deduce for themselves. You know, if, if you can't understand how an individual director identifies when it comes to something like sexual orientation um, and and looking at things like visible minority status uh, is also problematic unless you have the, the director's own self-assessment of, of how they fit in uh, to, to that disclosure framework.
0: Okay. I realize I started us down this path, but it does feel like we're getting just a little ahead of ourselves. What exactly is the NASDAQ rule? Harlan?
2: So in a nutshell, there's there's three uh, things that companies are going to be asked to do. Uh, And the first one uh, starts this year, and that's to disclose details about the diversity of the board of directors and what we mean by diversity. uh, The the framework here is really modeled after the EEO1 disclosure rules in the United States.
0: For those of you keeping score at home, that's acronym number one for today. Well, number two if we count NASDAQ, but in any case, the EEO is the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, also referred to at times as the EEOC.
2: So these are disclosure rules that all companies have to produce, and companies will now have to disclose how their board of directors uh, stacks up relative uh, to those categories. So directors uh, will be asked to self-identify as you know whether or not they're a visible minority, also whether or not they're uh, male or female, and uh, whether or not they're LGBTQ+. And then one year later, a complier explain quota kicks in. And companies will have to have at least one diverse director on their board. And a year after that, the quota goes up to two diverse directors, including one director who is either a divisible minority or LGBTQ+, and one director who is a woman.
0: The fact that the NASDAQ rule builds on the EEO framework, now, that's important because reporting within that framework is far from new for most U.S. companies as our third guest for this episode explains.
3: Hi, my name is Carrie Wong. I'm on the MSCI ESG research team, and I cover financial sector. So actually, U.S. companies with more than 100 employees have been required to report workforce racial and ethnic diversity data annually to the U.S. EEOC since the 1960s. But the companies they have discretion over whether to make this information public and over like what format or scope of the disclosures could be. Under the current EOC categories, there are seven demographic categories and each category is divided by male and female numbers. So what NASDAQ board matrix did was that they added, so they they were based on this rule, these seven demographic categories, and also added LGBTQ and also a did not disclose category.
0: A did not disclose. So there is still the option for a board member, I guess, to just say they may not want to disclose that information and that the NASDAQ has allowed for that.
3: Exactly. So both the EOC and the Nasdaq board uh, data, they are on a self-reported basis, which means uh, either the board members or the employees they actually can choose whether to disclose or not to disclose their gender and racial groups.
2: So what you might end up seeing for companies where the board doesn't want to participate in the rule, or or uh, companies where one or more directors have personal reservations about sharing that information is is that they'll uh, tick the I choose not to disclose box. The whole board might do that, um, in which case the, the company will publish a diversity table that essentially has no diversity data. Uh, and that will be in compliance with the rules.
0: And in terms of how often we might see not disclosed selected,
3: Actually, based on the current data we have collected, uh, that not disclosed portion is relatively small. So still most of the employees or board members would choose to disclose. But like sometimes we just see like maybe a very small portion, maybe 1% to 2%, they just like chose not to. I would not say that would affect the overall examination of how diverse the board or the workforce is.
0: It feels like the rule is coming into focus a bit, but before we move on, there is one aspect that Harlan alluded to earlier, this idea of comply or explain. I asked him whether he could explain.
2: So if you want to make a company do something, if you're a stock exchange or insurer regulator, you've got two options usually, and this is simplifying, but the first option is to just make them do it. Um, say that if you don't do this, you will be in trouble in some way or another. Um, Or you can give them the comply or explain uh, option. And what that means is that you either have to do X, Y, or Z or explain why you didn't. And so it gives the company the option to, in this case, say why they were unable to uh, find diverse directors or, or why they chose not to prioritize onboarding diverse directors and making these forms of diversity, why they chose not to um, consider that as part of their board recruitment strategy.
0: Are there guidelines for these explanations?
2: No, NASDAQ has been uh, pretty hands-off on the explanations themselves and have said that they don't intend to uh, assess the the quality or uh, substantiveness of, of the explanations. That's going to be left to investors. Um, so you could end up with a situation where a lot of companies are, are putting out kind of boilerplate statements um, that they consider many kinds of diversity in developing their, their board recruitment strategy and, and just leave it at that.
0: Fortunately, for the sake of this discussion, we do have a live model for this type of board diversity rule in Canada. And that one's been in effect since 2015, so we have results to look at, and hopefully the U.S., as well as others around the world, can learn from it. We'll get into some more specifics about the Canadian rule later on, but for now, we'll look to Catherine for lesson for the world number one, in this case as it applies to Comply and explain.
1: One of the interesting things about comply or explain regime is that because it's not prescriptive and because it's not telling issuers what to do, it shifts the from the regulator. It shifts the onus onto investors to monitor, police, you could say, what companies are doing. So with comply or explain, there's, there's no one but an investor, investors to say, you know, that's not good enough or you're doing a great job with this. So it, it helps provide investors with a meaningful tool. At CCG, we, we engage with uh independent directors of about 32 companies, 35 companies a year. We know that it gives us a foundation, I guess, to be able to have a, a meaningful discussion with boards about where they're headed, what their plans are, what their objectives are. Um, you know, having to say whether you're considering uh women in the uh in your nomination process or promotion process for the executive officers gives you it gives investors the ability to get some insight into what they're really doing and whether this is really a serious endeavor or not. I think we can tell from the quality of our discussions that if if the disclosure is meaningful, it's comprehensive, it's not boilerplate, then it provides a foundation for a much better conversation. And it's also better for the issuers and the boards we deal with because the investors are much more likely to be understanding or cut boards some slack if they're not where, you know, they think they should be, if they've got an explanation of what their goals are, how, how they're making progress towards those goals, what they intend to do.
0: Let's dig deeper. One of the reasons that Joe and I wanted to have Harlan on the show this week was research he had done on the rule back in February. In his assessment from that blog post, Harlan wrote, one key problem with the rules is that the one-woman director quota is a solution to yesterday's problem. I asked Harlem what he meant by that. Here's his answer.
2: Yeah, so if this one-woman diversity quota had come out even five years ago, uh, it actually would have you know, been, been quite a substantial uh, shift for the NASDAQ in particular, um, because it, five years ago in 2017, a quarter of, of NASDAQ-listed companies Uh, in our our ESG uh, coverage universe, did not have any women directors. But today, that quota affects almost no companies. Uh, I think 3% of of NASDAQ-listed companies at the time that we wrote that blog post uh, had no women directors. And you you could argue that this new quota will put uh, additional pressure on those those, few holdout companies, those hardliners. But it is still a comply or explain rule and these companies have gone this long, uh, showing a remarkable degree of uh, <laughs> intransigence against you know what is a pretty important investor priority. And I'm not sure that this rule is really going to move the needle on those three uh, the, those three percent of companies.
0: So why even do it? I mean, Nasdaq must have known what you know.
2: I think that it helps to distinguish Nasdaq as. Uh, you know, onboarding this important investor priority—the the one woman director quota—does reflect, um, I think, what a lot of investors see as a market standard, um, a, 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 a true bare minimum. Um, a lot of uh, institutional investors, for example, will have um, policies to vote against or withhold votes from directors if they—if the board lacks any any women directors. So. I think this kind of enshrines that within that that principle within within the, the the regulatory or quasi-regulatory framework of of the exchange rules, and and you know helps to cement it as you know, really and truly the bare minimum a board can do.
0: As we talked more about this, however, Harlan pointed to additional research that shed a less cynical light on Nasdaq's motivations.
2: In Nasdaq's uh, pitch to the SEC to, to implement this rule, uh, they they actually made a strong argument, um, citing a number of, of studies uh, showing a, a relationship between financial performance and greater diversity. And, and one of the studies they cited uh, was a, an MSCI study from from twenty fifteen, which found that boards with uh, at least 3 women on the board which which typically represents about a third of directors uh, on the the average board those those boards with 3 women that were associated with higher ROE return on equity and and Companies with no women directors uh, were associated with, with lower ROE over, over the same five-year uh, study period. So there, there is a, a financial relationship here. And we've also found that companies with, with higher levels of board diversity also tend to um, have higher levels of gender diversity among senior managers. Uh, and that, that companies that are able to sustain their board diversity, so that's, that means having three women directors for at least three contiguous years, those, those companies tend to perform better on environmental practices under our ESG ratings methodology. And and I think all of this ties into the idea that having more gender diversity on your board uh, gives, gives you more diversity of thought, uh, which allows for better decision-making. And that is ultimately what good corporate governance is about.
0: In fact...
3: We did a study in 2021 and we found that for companies with sustained board diversity, which means their boards have at least three women for at least three years, they exhibit higher growth in employee productivity. What we found is that, like for companies that have more diversity on their board, they also tend to have higher were better a tendency to have leading talent management practices. And when employees like have better profits and better benefits, they tend to generate more revenue on a per-employee account.
0: Okay, you've been very patient with me as we discuss the finer points of the NASDAQ rule, what we mean by comply or explain, and some of the very real reasons that board diversity is such a pressing topic for investors. But I did promise you a live example of the rules big sister from the great white north. And a live example you shall get.
1: Most of our governance uh, regulations and rules in Canada are based on a comply or explain regime. Um, What that means with respect to the diversity, gender diversity disclosure rules is that Issuers are asked to disclose certain elements, and there's no penalty if they don't. They simply have to explain why they don't. So the CSA policy...
0: CSA is Canadian Securities Administrators. Unlike the Securities and Exchange Commission in the U.S., CSA is less federal regulator and more umbrella group that's made up of local regulators in each of Canada's 10 provinces... In three territories.
1: CSA policy requires that uh, issuers disclose whether or not they have a written policy related to the identification and nomination of directors and a summary of the objectives and what the policy consists of and, and progress against those objectives. Also, whether the issuer considers the level of representation of women on the board in identifying and nominating candidates for election to the board. Uh, And if they don't disclose that, why do why do they not? uh, What are the reasons for not considering the representation of women? Uh, The policy also requires that issuers disclose whether or not they consider the representation of women in senior management as well. And finally, whether the issuer has adopted targets regarding the appointment of women to the board or women in executive officer positions.
0: Well, why don't we go there now? Let's continue with that thought. Why is it important to include one level down, if you will, from the board, which is something that the NASDAQ rule does not do?
1: Increasing diversity in senior management, for one thing, seems to be much more of an intractable problem than it is with boards. So there's not been a lot of progress made, even in those uh, jurisdictions in the world where they have mandatory quotas for board, for directors, for, for gender. And I think it's kind of a common sensible explanation. The... When you're looking, when a board is looking for uh, board members, it looks to what it considers to be appropriate skill set, expertise, knowledge, that sort of thing. And traditionally on boards, they have looked to C-suites and given that there are fewer women in the c suite especially in certain industries you're right away reducing the number of women in that that pool so we think it's incredibly important at the coalition that issuers also focus on increasing the number of women in senior executive positions and that i think realistically can only be done if they also increase women's gender representation throughout the organization so starting in the you know the lower bottom levels of of the workforce and working all the way through sort of an organic development
0: that's certainly logical we asked carrie if she had looked into this as part of her research and what she'd found when she did
3: it's actually uh hard to find a exact correlation between board diversity and executive diversity. And what we found through data collection process is that the companies also have different definitions of what are executive management and what are leadership. So they can either like only include CEO and their direct reports, and they can also include first level managers. So I would say like based on the current data constraint, Uh, I'm not able to provide an exact answer at this
0: point. However, what she did find when she looked outside the Americas...
3: Based on the data we found in 2021, among the developed markets, European countries had the highest percentage of companies with at least 30% women directors. Well, for emerging markets... Uh, They have like slightly lower percentage on that, but they have slightly higher percentage of female CEOs. So even though it's a slightly higher, but the percentage of female CEOs among those companies is still at 5.4%, which is really low compared to the total workforce female representation and the representation even on board for larger companies, they tend to have more board members and also they tend to have like more diverse members, which means like either female or uh, minority uh, board members. The healthcare and financial sector, they had the highest percentage of female CEOs. Well, for energy and industrial sectors, they had the lowest, which I think would make sense because uh, actually in uh, the sectors such as healthcare and financials they do have a higher percentage of women representation on their overall workforce and also another thing i want to mention is that actually there are higher percentage of women on the cfo roles than on the ceo roles
0: any thoughts on why that difference might be there that's clearly a very important Position And stereotypically or historically, finance, as you mentioned, not necessarily an area where women would have risen to the top.
3: I think that has something to do about the current or general responsibilities of CFOs, because they are more responsible for the accounting perspective or the finance management of different companies. And women tend to uh, occupy more accounting or finance-related roles. And I believe that's a major factor that leads to the higher percentage of female CFOs.
0: But the proof, as they say, is in the pudding. Fun fact, though, the original version of that saying is, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And while that's longer, of course, you, you have to admit it makes a lot more sense Let's listen to that part of my conversation with Catherine while I grab a snack. I'm I'm suddenly very hungry. Simply put, has it worked? Has the makeup of boards changed?
1: Yes, they have. Uh, I think there's disagreement about whether or different views about whether the progress has been uh, fast enough or Developed uh, in quickly enough, essentially because we have seen increases. I think when the uh, regulation was adopted, the policy was adopted back in two thousand and fifteen. Women comprised about ten percent of the board seats on the TSX, which is our major um, stock exchange. Now, I guess this is seven seven years later, eight years later. Uh, on the TSX-listed companies, that's so about five, 1,500 companies, 23% were held by women in last October. In the TSX-60, which is are the 60 largest companies, which tend to have better governance in our experience in Canada, the, the number was 33%. And for the TSX-composite, which is about... 230 companies and still larger companies than than perhaps the than most of the companies on the TSX. It's uh, 31%. What's very interesting, I think, is the fact that last year the number of women filling empty board seats was occurred at a rate of 39%. And that's key because if you if you replace women at a, a you know at a 1% per year, 2%, 10%, you're never going to get to gender parity on the boards. So I think that that we have seen progress, whether it's enough, is as I said, is a matter of your perspective. The CSA, which they um, are actually have put out for consultation and are considering right now um, whether to move beyond just the comply and explain because there is a sense that the the progress isn't hasn't been fast enough. So they're looking at, okay, maybe we should require or mandate that a target be set, perhaps without setting what that target, you know, uh, prescribing what that target would be, and perhaps having term limits on a board uh, should be mandated as well.
0: Definitely, as you mentioned, significant increase but have those been attributed directly to the rule or other factors? Has there been any research around that?
1: Actually, yeah. Um, It's a good question. The Conference Board of Canada put out a report, I think, in April 21, where their view was that there was no compelling evidence that the disclosure requirement had accelerated women on boards. They, they were saying, uh, suggesting that it could be put to alternative catalysts such as general social change, investors being more aggressive about it being an important issue. And so they said you could not conclude that. But however, there is a study out of the US that was uh, from last year as well, and just updated as of July 22. So it's very recent, which seems to be very clear that women on boards, the number of women on boards increased compared to controlled companies um, because of the disclosure and that's a very interesting study Um, they also saw an increase in the gender diversity considered in board nominations and there's more likelihood of adopting a target if you have to disclose whether or not you have one so I I think that my personally I think that it's safe to say that it has had an impact so hopefully the NASDAQ rules will as well. But they're very interesting because they're they're not as, in comparison, because they're not as expansive as our rules as I've just described them. So it'll be interesting to see whether that in itself has the kind of, effect because I, I think in, in the under the Canadian rules, there has been this encouragement to consider the issue and focus on ways of, of getting it to be something that is more acceptable within the boardroom. So, you know, look at the look at the pool, consider women when you're nominating. Uh, do you have a term limit? Is there board refreshment going on? So uh it it might make an interesting point of study further down the road about whether we think there's any differences between that, those two approaches.
2: Harlan concurred. So I think it'll be really interesting. I, you know, I think I speak for pretty much everyone, uh, all of my colleagues who, who make a living staring at proxy circulars. We're going to be really interested to see how disclosure, uh, around this changes board composition. Uh, and if indeed it does change board composition. So looking at, um, how NASDAQ boards looked in, in 2020 and 2021 and seeing how that changes through to, say, 2025 um, and you know, whether or not this can be a catalyst for companies to maybe have more than one women director. You know, maybe, maybe it will have a, a broader effect.
0: We're just getting started on the journey of the NASDAQ rule, even as Canada's continues to evolve and new ones emerge. This year alone, we've seen new rules in the UK and Germany, and just this past June, Japan announced their framework of policies that would require large companies to publicly disclose on gender gaps. Though we focused mainly on gender diversity here, many of these rules, including NASDAQ, they also account for racial diversity, as well as representation from the LGBTQ community. One thing that does seem certain, is that shareholders, regulators, and organizations around the world, they've all recognized the importance of diversity at the board level, at every level, really, and have put companies on notice. And to a large and growing extent, to their credit, companies have heard them. That's all for this week. A big thank you from Joe and me to Catherine, Harlan, and Carrie, and as always, to all of you for listening. Next up on the podcast, depending where you live, the debate over hybrid working either never went away or just feels like yesterday's news. But the impact on commercial real estate investments, particularly offices, that remains an open question. We'll look for answers with two industry experts. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe.